0: Our next uh, session is chaired by Charles Ferniehough, who is Professor of Psychology at Durham University, a writer of fiction, The Auctioneer, Box of Birds, as well as non-fiction, The Baby in the Mirror, Pieces of Light. His research lead on *A Hearing the, Voice, the Hearing the Voice Project, which is an interdisciplinary group from the arts, psychology, neuroscience, and philosophy, exploring and reappraising our understanding of auditory hallucinations. Um, Charles Ferniehough, thank you all. <laughs> An utterance that no one else can hear. A hallucination, a heard voice. A glitch in the brain, a rogue bit of language which feels real, but which isn't really there which is accepted as coming from the self, but at the same time feels utterly alien. A symptom of disconnectivity between prefrontal and temporal cortical regions. An auditory verbal hallucination. A marker of what the New York Times would call a degenerative brain disease. Three words, each of them wrong. If schizophrenia is, as in Thomas Saz's coinage, the sacred symbol of psychiatry, then this is the sacred symbol of the sacred symbol. If you hear voices, then you're really mad. The sign of the madman, the witch, the violent, the deranged, and perhaps even, as long as we're talking more than 500 years ago, the visionary. A young man alone in his bedroom having this frightening, disorienting experience for the first time. Wondering who to tell, his mum, his sister, his teacher, his GP. Wondering whether, as is often the case, to tell his best friend. Who knows as little about voice hearing as he does? Having to factor in their understanding of the experience, how will they react? I've seen people flinch, physically flinch, when I tell them that I work with people who hear voices in their heads. If they're flinching at me, what reaction is our young voice hearer? going to get. I'm Charles Ho and I lead a project at Durham University which has been generously supported by a strategic award in the Medical Humanities from the Wellcome Trust. In hearing the voice, we're listening to voice hearers. Some of us are voice hearers. We're hearing about abusive, threatening, and commanding voices, but also about voices that are as ordinary as everyday conversation. We're hearing about voices that are kind and supportive, Voices that are mostly single words or phrases or that are a constant cacophony. Multiple voices that talk, joke and argue. Our voices shout, whisper, are heard clearly, are muffled or difficult to distinguish. Sometimes they're not voices at all but other sounds, rustling, banging, crying, screaming or music. We're listening to people who say that they know their voices are there even when they're not speaking. What is a voice that doesn't speak? We're looking at voices in literature, in history, in the many ways in which people have sought out and listened to the voice of God. We've got psychologists working with literary scholars investigating how voice hearing works in the writings of Samuel Beckett and James Joyce. Social scientists and cognitive neuroscientists working with experience sampling. Medieval historians participating in the design of neuroimaging studies. Philosophers working with theologians to understand what it means to hear the voice of God. We're working on a new package of CBT, incorporating improved psychoeducation about voices and inner speech. But it's not just about the research and the clinical implications. There's a bigger message as well. I'm joined today by three people who know a great deal about voice hearing. Clinical psychologist Richard Bentall, psychiatrist David Sturgeon, and first, Eleanor Longdon. Eleanor is a doctoral researcher at the University of Leeds and a trustee of Intervoice, the International Hearing Voices Network. This year, she gave a prestigious TED Talk in Long Beach, California, in which she recounted her own journey to recovery from a demoralizing psychiatric diagnosis. Last time I looked, it had been viewed over a million times. Eleanor has written about her experiences in her book, Learning from the Voices in My Head. She's also author of a comprehensive theoretical account of the role of dissociation in voice-hearing, which was published in the prestigious journal Psychological Bulletin in 2012.
1: Thank you, you, Charles, and thank you very much to the organisers of this wonderful event. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Now, I want to tell you a story about a voice and a voice-hearer. And it begins with me leaving home for the very first time to go to university. Now, this was a bright day, brimming with hope and optimism. I'd done well at school. Expectations for me were high. And I gleefully entered the student life of lectures and parties and traffic home theft. Now, appearances, of course, can be deceptive. And to an extent... This feisty, energetic persona of lecture-going and traffic-cone-stealing was a veneer, albeit a very well-crafted and convincing one. Underneath, I was actually deeply unhappy, insecure, and fundamentally frightened. Frightened of the people, of the future, of failure, and of the emptiness that I felt was within me. But I was skilled at hiding it, and from the outside appeared to be someone with everything to hope for and aspire to. And this fantasy of invulnerability was so complete that I even deceived myself. And as the first semester ended and the second begun, there was no way that anyone could have predicted what was just about to happen. Now, it's in my second term that it started. I was leaving a seminar, humming to myself, fumbling with my bag, just as I'd done a hundred times before, when suddenly I heard a voice calmly observe, she is leaving the building. I looked around, and there was no one there, but the clarity and decisiveness of the comment was unmistakable. Shaken, I left my books on the stairs and hurried home, and there it was again. She is opening the door. This was the beginning. The voice had arrived. And the voice persisted, days and then weeks of it, on and on, narrating everything I did in the third person. She is going to a lecture. She is going to the library. It was neutral, impassive, and even, after a while, strangely companionate and reassuring, although I did notice that its calm exterior sometimes slipped and that it would occasionally mirror my own unexpressed emotion. So, for example, if I was angry and had to hide it, which I often did, being very adept at concealing how I really felt, then the voice would sound frustrated. Otherwise, it was neither sinister nor disturbing, although even at that point, it was apparent that the voice had something to show me about my emotions, particularly emotions which were remote or inaccessible. Now it was then that I made a fatal mistake, and that I told a friend about the voice, and she was horrified. A conditioning process had begun. The implication that normal people don't hear voices, and the fact that I did meant that something was very seriously wrong. And this kind of fear and mistrust was infectious. Suddenly. Voice didn't seem quite so benign anymore. And when she insisted that I seek medical help, I duly complied, and which proved to be mistake <coughs> number two. I spent some time telling the college GP about what I perceived to be the real problem: anxiety, low self-worth, fears about the future, to be met with bored indifference until I mentioned the voice, upon which he dropped his pen, swung round, and began to question me with a show of real interest. And to be fair, I was desperate for interest and help, and I began to tell him about my strange commentator. And I always really wish at this point the voice had said, She is digging her own grave. <laughs> <laughs> I was referred to a psychiatrist who likewise took a grim view of the voice's presence, subsequently interpreting everything I said a lens of latent insanity so for example i was part of a student tv station that broadcast news bulletins around the campus and during an appointment I was running very late said, i'm sorry doctor i've got to go i'm reading the news at six down my medical records Elna has delusions that she's a television news broadcaster <laughs> now it was at this point that events began to rapidly overtake me a hospital admission followed the first of many A diagnosis of schizophrenia came next, and then, worst of all, a toxic, tormenting sense of hopelessness, humiliation and despair about myself and my prospects. But having been encouraged to see the voice, not as an experience, but as a symptom, my fear and resistance towards it intensified. Now, essentially, this represented taking an aggressive stance towards my own mind, a kind of psychic civil war. And in turn, this caused the number of voices to increase and grow progressively hostile and menacing. Helplessly and hopelessly, I began to retreat into this nightmarish inner world in which the voices were destined to become both my persecutors and my only perceived companions. They told me, for example, that if I could prove myself worthy of their help, then they could change my life back to how it had been. And a series of progressively bizarre tasks was set a kind of Labor of Hercules. They started off quite small, for example, pull out three strands of hair, but gradually grew more extreme, culminating in commands to harm myself and a particularly dramatic instruction. You see that lecture over there, you see that glass of water on his desk. We have to pour it over him in front of the other students, which I actually did, which I'm quite proud about. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But which, needless to say, did not endear me to the faculty. In effect, a vicious cycle. Fear, avoidance, mistrust had been established between me and the voices, and this was a battle in which I felt powerless and incapable of establishing any kind of peace or reconciliation. (coughs) Two years later, and the deterioration had been dramatic. By now, I have the whole frenzied repertoire. Terrifying voices, grotesque visions, bizarre, intractable delusions. My mental health status had been a catalyst for discrimination, verbal abuse, and physical and sexual assault. And I've been told by my psychiatrist, Eleanor, you'd be better off with cancer because cancer is easier to cure than schizophrenia. I've been diagnosed, drugged and discarded and was by now so tormented by the voices that I attempted to drill a hole in my head in order to get them out. Now, looking back on the wreckage and despair of those years, it seems to me now as if someone died in that place and yet someone else was saved. A broken, haunted person began that journey. The person who emerged was a survivor and would ultimately grow into the person I was destined to be. Many people have harmed me in my life, and I remember them all, but the memories grow pale and faint in comparison with the people who've helped me. The fellow survivors, the fellow voice hearers, the comrades and collaborators, the mother who never gave up on me, who believed that one day I would come back to her, was willing to wait for me for as long as it took. The doctor, who only worked with me for a brief time, but he reiterated his belief that recovery was not only possible, but inevitable. And during a period of devastating relapse told my terrified family, please don't give up hope. I believe that Eleanor can get through this. Sometimes you know it snows as late as May, but summer always comes eventually. Fourteen minutes is not enough time to fully credit those good and generous people who fought with me and for me and who waited to welcome me back from that agonised, lonely place. But together, they forged a blend of courage, creativity, integrity and an unshakable belief that my shattered self could become healed and whole. I used to say that these people saved me, but what I now know is they did something even more important in that they empowered me to save myself. And crucially, they helped me to understand something which I'd always suspected that my voices were a meaningful response to traumatic life events, particularly childhood events, and as such were not my enemies, but a source of insight into solvable emotional problems. Now, at first, this was very difficult to believe, not least because the voices appeared so hostile and menacing. And in this respect, a crucial first step was learning to separate out a metaphorical meaning what I previously interpreted as a literal truth. So, for example, voices which threatened to attack my home, I learned to interpret as my own sense of fear and insecurity in the world rather than an actual objective danger. Now, at first, I would have believed them. I remember, for example, sitting one night on guard outside my parents' room to protect them from what I believed was a genuine threat from the voices. Because I'd had such bad problems with self-injury, most of the cutlery in the house had been hidden and replaced with plastic picnic ware. I remember sitting there clutching a plastic fork sort of on guard, ready to spring into action, should anything happen. It's like, don't mess with me, you've got a plastic fork. <laughs> don't you know? Um, and our later, more strategic response is to dispense with the plastic fork and instead try to deconstruct the message behind the words. So, for example, when the voices warn me not to leave the house, then I would thank them for drawing my attention to how unsafe I felt because I was aware of it. I could do something positive about it, but then go on to reassure both them and myself that we were safe and didn't need to feel frightened anymore. I would set boundaries for the voices and try to interact with them in a way that was assertive yet respectful, establishing a slow process of communication and collaboration in which we could learn to work together and support one another. And throughout this process, what I would ultimately realise was that each voice was closely related to aspects of myself and that each of them carried overwhelming emotions that I'd never had an opportunity to process or resolve. Memories of sexual trauma and abuse, of anger, loss, shame, low self-worth. The voices took the place of this pain and gave words to it. And possibly one of the greatest revelations was when I realised that the most hostile and aggressive voices actually represented the parts of me that had been hurt the most profoundly, and as such, it was these voices that needed to be shown the greatest compassion and care. Now, I was armed with this knowledge that I would ultimately gather together my shattered self, each fragment represented by a different voice, gradually withdraw from all my medication and return to psychiatry, only this time from the other side. Ten years after the voices first came, I finally graduated, this time with the highest degree in psychology the university ever given, and with one year later the highest masters, which as I always say isn't bad for a nutter. In fact, one of the voices actually dictated the answers during an exam, which technically possibly (laughs) counts as cheating. (laughs) Um, And to be honest, I sometimes quite enjoyed their attention as well. As Oscar has said, the only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. <laughs> it also makes you extremely good at eavesdropping, because you can listen to two conversations simultaneously, so it's not all bad. Um, I worked in mental health services, I spoke at conferences, I published book chapters and academic articles, but I argued, and continue to do so, the relevance of the following concept, that an important question in psychiatry shouldn't just be what's wrong with you, but rather what's happened to you. And all the while... I listened to my voices with whom I'd finally learned to live with peace and respect and which in turn reflected a growing sense of compassion, acceptance and respect towards myself and I remember the most moving and extraordinary moment when supporting another young woman who was terrorised by her voices and becoming fully aware for the very first time that I was no longer in that position myself but was finally able to help someone else who was. I'm now very proud to be a part of Intervoice, the organisational body of the International Hearing Voices Movement, an initiative inspired by the work of Professor Marius Rom and Dr Sondra Escher, which locates voice hearing as a survival strategy, a sane reaction to insane circumstances. Not an aberrant symptom of schizophrenia to be endured, but a complex, significant and meaningful experience to be explored. Together, we envisage and enact a society that understands and respects voice-hearing, supports the needs of individuals who hear voices and which values them as full citizens. This type of society is not only possible, it's already on its way. To paraphrase Chavez, once social change begins, it cannot be reversed. You cannot humiliate the person who feels pride. You cannot oppress the people who are not afraid anymore. For me, the achievements of the Hearing Voices movement are a reminder that empathy, fellowship, justice and respect are more than words. They are convictions and beliefs, and that beliefs can change the world. In the last 20 years, the movement has established Hearing Voices networks in 26 countries across five continents, working together to promote dignity, empowerment and solidarity for individuals in mental distress, to create a new language and practice of hope, which, at its very (coughs) centre, an unshakable belief in the power and resilience of the individual. As Peter Levine has said, the human animal is a unique being endowed with an instinctual capacity to heal and the intellectual spirit to harness this innate capacity. In this respect, for members of society, there is no greater honour or privilege than facilitating that process of healing for someone. (coughs) To bear witness, to reach out a hand, to share the burden of someone's suffering and to hold the hope for their recovery. And likewise, for survivors of distress and adversity, it's important that we remember that so we don't have to live our lives forever defined by the damaging things that have happened to us. We are unique. We are irreplaceable. What lies within us can never be truly colonised, contorted, or taken away. The light never goes out. There's a very wonderful doctor once said to me Don't tell me what other people have told you about yourself, tell me about you. Thank you. Thank you.
2: Thank
0: you, Eleanor, for your powerful and inspiring story, which I think does uh, pay, bear witness to one extraordinary individual and her strength and resilience. And this question of not just what is wrong with you, but what happened to you, I think we'll be coming back to later. Professor Richard Bentall is Professor of Clinical Psychology at the University of Liverpool. He's for several decades been a leading figure in cognitive and social processes in psychosis. He's changed our understanding about the coherence or otherwise of schizophrenia as a concept, about cognitive processes in delusions and hallucinations, and more recently about the role of social adversity, abuse and trauma in the development of these experiences. His book, Madness Explained, won the British Psychological Society Book Award in 2004. His most recent book, Doctoring the Mind, takes on the bad science of the psychiatry uh, pharmaceuticals um, industry. He's a great colleague and a great friend, and it's a pleasure to welcome him today.
3: Thank you. And it's uh, wonderful to be here. Um, That's... As I've spoken with Eleanor before, and it's always I always have the same feeling—it's a tough act to follow. Um, so, um, uh, but I, hopefully, some of the things I'll be saying will actually echo. In a, a, I've come from a some very different uh, perspective from Eleanor, obviously, but uh, will echo a lot of what Eleanor said. I actually started as a clinical psychologist in the um, uh, mid 1980s. Uh, so I've been st- and I've been studying hearing voices for most of that time since, so nearly 30 years. Um, And during that time, our understanding of hearing voices has changed enormously, really. And uh, for me, this has been quite a journey. It's a journey which has involved three, I think, important discoveries, which um, I will come to in due course. So when I first qualified in the mid-1980s, I worked for two years in NHS forensic units. Um, By accident, really, more than by design. I saw my future in research, which is where I ended up. Um, but I thought it was useful to spend uh, some time getting some a, a bit of clinical experience behind my belt, and the forensic service I worked in, one of them uh, had uh, a quite large psychology service which had did two things: most of the psychologists worked without patients who had what were called personality disorders, mainly people who had committed sexual offenses. But there was an inpatient unit, which was quite large, a couple of hundred beds, uh, which mainly had patients with psychosis who had been come into conflict with the law for various different reasons. And I was um, interested in patients who had diagnosed of schizophrenia. They were the patients who were uh, mainly occupied this place. Uh, but nothing in my training had ever told me how to work with people with schizophrenia. In fact, psychologists just didn't work with patients with diagnosis diagnosed schizophrenia in those days. And looking back on it, I'm fairly amazed that the psychiatrist in the forensic unit sort of tolerated me, really. I think they thought I was kind of nice but useless. <laughs> and indeed, I probably was nice but useless. <clears throat> uh, the first problem I came to uh, grapple with was the concept of schizophrenia itself. It seemed to me that when I talked to the patients in the unit, they had a wide variety of different problems. And it was very difficult to see how these could all be encompassed within one understanding, with one, within one theoretical perspective. And although I'm not going to dwell on this now, uh, just to say that I've come to believe that the concept of schizophrenia is basically meaningless. It loops together uh, people with a wide range of different difficulties. And it's an impediment to trying to advance uh, better care for people with mental illness uh, rather than, than an aid. Um, and what I came to believe in the end was that uh, whereas it was very difficult to decide actually who had schizophrenia, in fact you'd often find that doctors would disagree about whether patients had schizophrenia or not, so patients would get their diagnoses changed from schizophrenia to bipolar disorder and back again, almost at random, it seems, sometimes. Where it was difficult to decide who had schizophrenia or not, it was certainly possible to decide who had particular types of symptoms, so who, for example, heard voices. And that uh, by looking at these symptoms in turn, it would be possible to try and construct a kind of coherent understanding of them. Now, about that time, I met the first patient I ever spent any serious amount of time with who heard voices, um, He was a chap who had um, been admitted to the frantic unit because he had assaulted his father. And uh, he heard voices, and I was asked to see him, and I had no idea what I was going to do, basically. Uh, So uh, there was an old dictum from an American psychologist, George George Kelly, who says, if you don't know what's going on, try asking the patient. He he just might tell you. (laughs) So I did. (coughs) And he told me that he had a voice which said just one thing, it kept saying, give cancer to the crippled bastard. And um, he would... I said, well, do you have any idea what this means? And he said, no, I haven't a clue. But I knew what it meant, because it was pretty obvious. He was sitting in a wheelchair, so it's pretty obvious straight away who the crippled bastard was. Um, It turned out that he had made a suicide attempt by jumping off the top floor of a multi-storey car park, um, obviously failing to kill himself, but actually quite seriously uh, crippling himself for life. So... um, it also turned out that his mother had died of cancer and that he had terrible guilt about this. Now I don't know how those two things came together with give cancer to the cripple bastard, but it was clear to me there was some kind of meaning in what the voice was saying. It wasn't a complete random spasm of the nervous system, just a symptom of this brain, genetically determined brain disease, schizophrenia, which is what I'd been taught it was. Um, and that was the beginning of being interested in trying to understand how it is that people can have these kinds of experiences. Now, a lot of the research I've done since then has focused on the cognitive mechanisms. I'm not going to go into this. But suffice it to say that uh, I suppose the fundamental insight is that we all have an inner voice. All of us speak to ourselves. All of us think in words. Charles and I have discussed this for years. And that's how we came to know each other, because Charles is a developmental psychologist originally who's interested in how we develop this inner voice. <coughs> And um, there's something about this inner voice, obviously, which is connected to hearing voices. And uh, what we've come to believe is that actually there's a kind of mechanism in the brain, in the mind, which involves telling the difference between what we're saying to ourselves and what we're hearing from other people. And sometimes this mechanism, for various reasons which are too complicated to go into, doesn't quite work in the typical way that it does in everyday life. when I was starting to do this work, I met an extraordinary Dutch psychiatrist called Marius Rom, who uh, Ellen has already met, mentioned. Uh, Marius uh, had a fantastic story about a patient, and I'll have to be very quick about this, but it was a, a patient who was driven to the point of suicide by voices and who wouldn't respond to all the different types of uh, interventions which they tried, but who suddenly seemed to be quite happy with her voices. And uh, Marius was quite puzzled by this, so try to find out what had happened. And it turned out this woman had read the most extraordinary book. It's a book by sort of cult book by an American psychologist called Julian Jaynes. The book's called The Origins of Consciousness, and it was uh, published in 1976. If you're like me, you're the sort of person who, when you go on a beach holiday, you take one book which is vaguely work-related but a bit wacky, <laughs> this is the book to take. Okay? <laughs> so Jaynes claims that ancient Greeks weren't conscious in the same way that we are in the modern world. The ancient Greeks didn't have a sense of I. He he concluded this by an analysis of the language of the Iliad. So you might be walking down the High street in Cheltenham and thinking, uh, I'd like a cup of coffee, I'll just go into Costa. Uh, An ancient Greek would hear a voice saying, you must go into Costa and get a cup of coffee. The coffee god. Which is why, because they didn't have any sense of themselves where the voice was coming from. Uh, which is why the ancient Greeks have a lot of gods but don't talk about mental states in the way that we do. I have checked this out with classic scholars. Uh, they agree, actually, it seems, with uh, James's analysis of the language of the Iliad, but they think his uh, explanation is, frankly, nuts. Uh, in fact, one of them put it to me like this. Uh, he was a Hungarian. He said, uh, Richard, in Hungary, we don't have separate words for he and she, but we do know the difference. <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> so so, but anyway, James's account is, is that they don't talk about mental states because they haven't got in the same sense that we have. And you can see the connection with schizophrenia. Well, this lady read this book, and she thought, my God, I'm not a schizophrenic, I'm an ancient Greek.
4: And as soon as she,
3: as soon as she decided that she was an ancient Greek, then, you know, that's a bit a lot more interesting than being schizophrenic, isn't it? I mean, you, could sort of, you don't want to talk about being schizophrenic at parties, but you might just want to talk about being an ancient Greek. And Marius Ron said to me, once, w- w- the most important thing, which I think any professional has ever said to me in my career, he said, Richard, I really do like your research on hearing voices. But the trouble is, you do want to cure people who hear voices, don't you? He said, I don't think people who hear voices need curing. They need liberating. They're like homosexuals in the 1950s. They need liberation, not cure. And that is a very, very powerful thought. And it certainly changed my entire attitude towards helping people who hear voices. and. You know, I, I, I agree with him now. I agree that actually liberation is for most people a lot better route than, than cure. I'll move on to one more thing. Uh, another important discovery which came out of Marius Rom's work is that hearing voices is much more common than people have hitherto thought. So uh, It turns out that in epidemiological samples that about 1 in 10 people have experienced voices at some point in their lives. Only about one in 200 people get a diagnosis of schizophrenia. So for every person who gets a diagnosis of schizophrenia, there are a lot of people out there who hear voices. Uh, Often they don't tell people, but they're living mostly quite good lives, good lives in some cases. So that supports the idea that learning to live with voices might be a better better approach to these things than than learning to accept voices. What Ellen was talking about, as all accepting voices, might be a better approach than trying either... Uh, sort of aggressive pharmacological or, for that matter, aggressive psychological treatments. i just come to one final discovery, which has become very important to me in the last 10 years. Um, I was told when I was uh, trained to be a clinical psychologist that schizophrenia, which is this disease which I no longer believe exists, which is supposed to be the cause of hearing voices, I was told that schizophrenia is largely genetic. There are many people who still believe this today. In fact, the Medical Research Council, for example, spends the lion's share of its research funds on hunting genes for schizophrenia. This has been a terrible failure. No genes for schizophrenia have been found, and indeed, if there were genes for schizophrenia, they would have been found by now. If you talk to geneticists, they come up with all sorts of complicated reasons why if we just spend a few tens of millions more pounds, we will finally discover some complex explanation in genetic terms but actually, uh, there are no major genes for schizophrenia. There are certainly genetic factors, but they're nowhere near as important as has been thought of in the past. People have assumed that, be- that the- because it's been assumed that psychotic disorders are largely genetic, that there's not much of an environmental component. But over the last 10 or 15 years, an enormous amount of research has been published, usually on a shoestring, actually, which has shown that there are profound environmental factors which influence whether people develop severe mental illnesses. So just to run through a few, it turns out that children who are brought up in in conditions of social inequality are at higher risk of all types of mental illness, including psychosis. Now, social inequality is an interesting thing because it isn't the same as wealth. So to put it in a kind of nutshell, growing up poor doesn't seem to do people too much harm. But growing up poor next to rich people seems to cause people a lot of harm. And that's really interesting. There must be some kind of mechanism. It's not understood, but there must be some kind of reason why that is. It's something to do with social comparison, obviously. Migrants have a much higher risk of severe mental illness than non-migrants. And the interesting thing is it depends on where they live. So an Afro-Caribbean living in a white neighborhood in Britain has about a four to eight times increased risk of being diagnosed as schizophrenic and actually really experiencing symptoms, it, just isn't, it isn't just a bias in the diagnostic system, Then uh, an Afro-Caribbean live, growing up in a predominantly black neighbourhood. An Afro-Caribbean living in a black neighbourhood doesn't have an increased risk of psychosis. It's got to be something about social comparison. Gay people have about the two to three times increased risk of developing a psychosis in later life, particularly, surprise, surprise, if they're victims of uh, discrimination, Bullying, that kind of thing. It's got to be something to do with social comparison. One of the things which I've become interested in particularly is childhood experiences. Um, This this has been highly uh, a matter of great controversy. People don't want to, or have resisted the idea that early life experience can have a profound effect on your risk of mental illness. You can see why if you think about it. It's not a comfortable kind of thought. Recently, with colleagues in Maastricht, we carried out what's called a meta-analysis. A meta-analysis is where you get together all of the evidence which is available and you you put them, it's basically you get all the studies, put them all together into a pot and apply complex statistical techniques to get an overall effect, to find out what the overall answer is. We've, we looked at prospective studies. These are studies, for example, of children who have been traumatised by, for example, sexual or physical abuse or bullying in early life and have been followed up. We looked at retrospective studies where patients have told researchers about their lives and also control, you know, healthy people have told people about their lives. We looked at epidemiological studies, studies where people, where huge samples of the population, usually sort of in the order of about 10,000 people, have been asked about their early experiences and also given a psychiatric interview to see what symptoms they experienced. It doesn't matter which way you do it, the answer is the same. Somebody who has childhood trauma has a three times risk of developing psychosis in later life. That's the bare figure. And the interesting thing is it doesn't matter which way you measure it. It doesn't matter whether you look at the retrospective studies, the prospective studies, or the epidemiological studies. They give you the same result. And when you look at the individual studies, the data is amazingly consistent. So if there's only one study which had... A, 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 one tiny study from Japan, as it turns out, sort of doesn't really support this <laughs> the conclusion. There's about 30 or 40 really good studies which do... Um, there's a dose-response relationship. So the more severe the trauma in early life, the greater the risk of psychosis. So somebody who's had multiple traumas in early life, they have a, well, according to some estimates, a 50 times risk of developing psychosis. And this for me has been uh, an extraordinary discovery, actually. Uh, and it's altered my whole kind of approach to thinking about mental health. And just to, to summarize, I'll put it like this. It turns out that there are a wide range of environmental risk factors out there in the environment which are affecting the mental health of everybody in this room at the moment and all the people we know and care about and, and love. They're affecting our children. They're affecting what will happen to them in the future. Um, an army of psycho- clinical psychologists and an army of psychiatrists isn't going to fix that. Um, no, don't get me wrong. I'd quite like an army of clinical psychologists. it be just for a lot of my friends. But it's not going to fix that. We have to fix the world. So we have to change our focus to some extent about mental health. As Eleanor saying, we should be asking the question, not what, you know, what symptoms do you have, but what happened to you? And that is the future, I think, for addressing mental health problems in this country. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Richard. Our third speaker is David Sturgeon, who's been a practicing psychiatrist since 1973. He worked in academic psychiatry from 1976, working with Julian Leff on some of the groundbreaking work on expressed emotion. Uh, In 1986, he helped to set up the family project in South Camden, and more recently, he's been working with the UCL Psychological Therapy Service with undergraduate and postgraduate students, and I'm told, some faculty members as well. Thank you, David.
5: Thank you very much, Charles. Um, I don't know if some of you who were here last year can remember Sebastian Falks talking about research for his book on human traces. And he was put in in touch with um, somebody who suffered from schizophrenia, uh, a woman called Jamie, who had made a cassette of what her voice said to her. And during their interview, she asked Sebastian to put on headphones and played this tape to him while he was asking her questions. But during the interview, she turned up the volume. And it got to such a, an amplitude that Sebastian said he just could not think straight. He just could not focus. He could not concentrate on what the questions were. Um, and that, that really was... A remarkable experience for him of what it's like um, having a lot of demanding, persecuting voices. Now, voices are not diagnostic uh, in schizophrenia. They can occur in many, many conditions. They're said to have certain characteristics, but as Richard has stated, there's an enormous overlap. In schizophrenia, the classical all all true hallucinations arise in external objective space, and they're perceived with the organ of sensation. So you hear something through your ears, you see something with your eyes open, feel something through your skin, but there is no external stimulus. But classical schizophrenic voices are. Uh, External third-person voices, as Eleanor beautifully described, which tend to give a running commentary on the person's thoughts or their actions. They may give commands and orders, which is very hard for the person to resist, and sometimes they speak thoughts out loud. Um, In depressive psychosis, uh, the voice is a second-person one, tends to be a second-person one, doesn't give sentences. It tends to give short, clipped statements in keeping with the person's affect. So in a depressive psychosis, the voice might say, rotten sot, you're worthless, kill yourself. Or in a manic psychosis, the voice might say, you're great. You're the king. Go to the palace. Uh, and, and the person may well do that. Um, Many uh, voices that we see in psychiatry are drug-induced. Amphetamine, for example, can um, create a clinical picture which is very, very similar to paranoid uh, schizophrenia, except that the the voice tends, again, it will give a running commentary, but it tends to be second person. Alcohol, a major culprit in hearing voices, you know, delirium tremens, a sudden withdrawal from alcohol, somebody on acute medical ward two days after admission quietly shaking in the corner and then the urine bottle is flung down the ward and lots of shouting and screaming about these creatures or voices which are coming to get the person to persecute them. There's another interesting uh, hallucination involved with alcohol, alcoholic hallucinosis, which tends to occur after a bout of heavy drinking, but not a cessation. So the person drinks often and then uh, drinks less. And this is characterised by two or more voices, conversational voices, which talk about the person in a very derogatory way. Um, and, of course, organic brain conditions, uh, we know, have hallucinations in many modalities, primarily visual hallucinations, but also voices persecutory voices, but accompanied by clouding of consciousness, so disorientation for time, place, and person, and usually in that order. And, as we've heard, some people just hear voices. Um, Socrates heard a voice, as an ancient Greek person. (laughs) Socrates heard a voice which he he called his guardian, um, which was very supportive and would advise him Uh, Joan of Arc, we know, um, heard voices. They're not diagnostic in themselves, but if they occur in conjunction with other symptoms, um, in schizophrenia, classically, uh, delusions of of, uh, control or thought interference, thoughts being put into your head or taken out of your head against your will, or in mania grandiose delusions of ability or identity, um, but accompanied by increased mental and physical activity. Um, We're increasingly coming to understand the social factors which um, influence severity of voices. We know for a long time, for example, that um, under stimulation, if somebody isolates themselves, you know, won't come out of their room, the voices become very, very much more intense. Or if they're overstimulated, you know, if they're um, uh, you know, in, in, in the lunch atmosphere at the parabola, lots of things going on, the voices will also become more intense. Um, as Charles mentioned, I, I worked with Julian Leff in the 1980s uh, looking at the influence of families on schizophrenia and on the symptoms of schizophrenia, it had been known for some time that people who'd had an acute episode of schizophrenia, left hospital and returned home to live with their relatives, tended to have a much higher relapse rate than people who didn't live at home. And some time was spent teasing out just what it was about living with families that might cause this. And it seemed to be the emotional temperature that was generated within the family, which became known as expressed emotion. And so the question, uh, which, which consisted of usually one relative who tended to make very critical or hostile comments about the person, or very over-invol- emotionally over-involved comments, um, a typical over-involved comment might be something like, it nearly kills me every time I see her standing there with a, with a fag hanging out of her mouth. Her behavior is impinging on me and is having a negative effect on me. Um, And this kind of atmosphere seemed to be very bad for people with schizophrenia. Somebody left hospital having recovered from a schizophrenic episode and returned to live in a high-expressed emotion situation. The relapse rate over the next nine months was 92%. I mean, they're nearly all going to relapse if they don't take medication. If they take medication, it comes down to about 50%. If they go home to live with a low expressed emotion the relative, the relapse rate is 15%. Enormous difference between these two. And um, so we wanted to know if it was possible to change expressed emotion, would a decrease in relapse rate follow? Um, And, in fact, uh, it did. One of the aspects that we looked at in this research was the level of arousal in the person with schizophrenia. Um, And an indication of this was measuring um, uh, spontaneous fluctuations in their skin conductance, a a peripheral autonomic measure of central arousal. And in interviews with um, the, the person with schizophrenia and their relative... Uh, people living with high expressed emotion relatives had very high rates of arousal, uh, unlike people living with low expressed emotion relatives. But after the research had been completed and after people had been helped to reduce the level of expressed emotion, that level of arousal was reduced, as was the relapse rate. So, in other words, doing something social... uh, Helping relatives to reduce expressed emotion did something biological. It it reduced the level of arousal um, in the person with schizophrenia. Um, now we only know somebody's hallucinating if they tell us. Although some people, not all, some people will kind of adopt a listening posture, or they may flick their eyes up to one side and, uh, and blink rapidly while they're hearing voices. Um, And we looked at people hearing voices as part of this research, taking uh, this measure of spontaneous fluctuations in in skin conductance, and we found that there was an increased rate of spontaneous fluctuations immediately before the person reported hearing uh, hearing their voices. And voices could be precipitated by talking uh, to them about social events. Interestingly, particularly talking about care from their mental health professionals. Um, many mental health professionals were regarded as having great stigma uh, uh, towards persons with mental illness. So that was a learning curve. Um, how, how can we understand voices from the psychodynamic perspective? And this certainly has been hinted at. I think... Um, Ronald Fairburn's concepts are very helpful here. He was a, a Scottish analyst in the early part of the 20th century um, who developed a concept of the internal saboteur. Um, basically, childhood traumatic childhood events, childhood bullying, sexual abuse, uh, parental neglect led to low self-esteem and low valuing of the person, which were internalized as uh, negative internal saboteurs. And people with schizophrenia can become overwhelmed um, by these factors. And they have to be split off. They have to be uh, externalized. or well, they have to be projected. Projection involves putting something outside yourself, but it boomerangs back uh, to you. But in doing that, the person then loses control, and what little control they may have had, over (laughs) the voices which become um, autonomous. Um, Julian Leff, at the moment, has uh, just completed a very interesting study of people who are treatment-resistant, schizophrenic people treatment-resistant, who've heard uh, voices for over ten years, very uh, persecutory, negative voices um, which (coughs) severely disrupt their lives. And what he's done with them is to create an avatar of the voice. Um, So a computer-generated image of the person um, imagined to be um, uh, um, using this voice. And what he's been able to do, has the the, uh, uh, voice here in the room with the a screen, the image of the avatar, saying to them what the, um, uh, the voice would normally say. But the therapist in another room can interfere with what the avatar is saying and can gradually change the voice to become less demanding, less punitive, more supportive, um, and... The amazing thing is that he, his, his sample size was very small. It was only 16. And two people had to drop out because they had multiple voices, and the voices became much more punitive and much more demanding <clears throat> during this research. But other people who, who completed these sessions, and there were only six sessions, only six sessions, three people lost their voices completely. The voice went away. And in the other people... Um, the uh, trauma of the voice was very much reduced. He also, at the start of this research, had carried out what's called a a Calvary Depression Scale, which Calvary Scale measures depressive symptoms in people with psychotic illnesses. Um, And they were all featuring at the very high end of the Depression Scale and and with suicidality. Uh, After this research Uh, the depression scale was very much reduced as was suicidality so this looks a very promising line of research he's now got a grant from the Wellcome Trust for a much larger study and we're very hopeful that this may produce very similar results Um, I think psychiatrists often advised people hearing voices to ignore them um, which is extremely hard to do And then now advise people to try and engage with the voice, uh, to try and reason with it, to try and kind of weigh up the evidence for and against what the voice is saying. Um, And this, I I think the avatar research really is um, underlining this. As, As mental health professionals, we have to take very great care not to confuse the illness with the person who has it. Um, the illness can be like a demon that that leaps on their back, unwanted, unannounced, and makes them say things and think things and do things that they wouldn't normally wish to do. And what we have to help them do is to find a way of, of getting that demon off their back and into the corner. Still there, but it's not immediately interfering with the quality of their life, so they're more able... Uh, to be the kind of people that they would wish to be. Thank you very much.
0: (laughs) Thank you very much, David. We're here this weekend to celebrate the voice in all its forms. Um, And my first question to the panel is, how how has the voice, how have voices, come to have the status that they have as sacred symbols of the sacred symbol, <coughs> as pretexts for stigma and discrimination, as objects of scientific inquiry, as inspirations for art?
4: <laughs> Gosh, what's,
0: what's special about the voice?
3: <coughs> I mean, I can answer part of that question, which is basically about how it's how they've obtained the position they have within the sort of psychiatric... um, within psychiatry. I think um, the the idea that that madness, for want of a better word, is uh, a sort of medical condition actually is... uh, In some sense, it's very old. You can trace it back partly to the ancient Greeks, but on the other hand, it's an idea which is also very modern in the sense that psychiatry was invented as a discipline, really, in the German-speaking world, in the early 19th century. Um, And um, (laughs) at that time, there was a a big push by psychiatrists to uh, basically advance a kind of standard sort of biomedical view of um, mental illness. And uh, there are a number of important people who were working at that time. One is Emil Kraepelin, who um, was probably the most influential psychiatrist ever, much more influential than Freud, actually, although Freud is a household name, and Kraepelin isn't. And it was Kraepelin who formulated the what we he called it dementia precox, which literally meant senility of the young, but was later renamed by Bloiler as schizophrenia. So it was Kraepelin who introduced that idea. And Kraepelin was a fascinating character. He was a first German nationalist. Um, he uh, had an obsession about the evils of alcohol and syphilis, with which he would bore people almost literally to death over uh, long periods of time. Um, um, and he definitely wasn 't somebody you 'd want to tell you problems to, uh, but on the other hand, he was quite an interesting interest in a whole variety of different research approaches, so he wasn 't narrow minded either so he, <coughs> he was one of the first people to suggest that experimental psychology, for example, might have a role have something to say about mental illness and he did cross cultural studies and he was a pioneer of psychopharmacology so he 's a kind of interesting person, but he created you know, he, this biomedical framework, which is to see these things as simply symptoms of disorders of the nervous system. And in fact, Kraepelin employed uh, for a while Alzheimer. And it was under Kraepelin's watch that Alzheimer discovered the histopathology underlying the disease which is now called Alzheimer's disease. And it was in fact Kraepelin's decision that it should be called Alzheimer's disease. And uh, Kraepelin fervently hoped that Alzheimer would manage to do the same trick with dementia precox. And he had... Alzheimer doing post-mortem examinations of the brains of mental uh, dementia precox patients I was very dismayed when Alzheimer couldn't come up with anything. So that idea has was kind of introduced in psychiatry about that time. And it's kind of come and gone, come and gone over years. And I think that I'm gonna say something, and I, I I should say clinical psychologists, we have a kind of history of sort of battling it out with psychiatrists, but you know, a lot of <laughs> a lot of a lot of my best friends are psychiatrists, as I say, you know. Um, and there are a lot of things which these days we see eye to eye on as well as which we still battle over. But my perception of psychiatry as a profession is it's always had a bit of a problem in terms of its relation to the rest of medicine. And, you know, it's claimed to have a place at the high table of medicine. And I think... That structured the way that psychiatry has responded to mental illness at various different times. And particularly in the 1970s, where in America, begin, beginning in America, but also eventually in other parts of the world, this claim was made again that, that, that uh, schizophrenia is a genetically-caused brain disease. And, and there are plenty of people who will tell you that schizophrenia is simply a genetically-determined brain disease, particularly in America, but not only in America. And some indication of this, actually, which amused me, was... Uh, A couple of years ago, I looked on the website of the American Psychiatric Association. This is a place where American psychiatrists most often meet the the world. And they had a picture on the front page of four psychiatrists at work. And one was dressed maybe a bit like I am. I think he was wearing a tie. Uh, Two were in white coats, and one was in surgical scrubs. So... (laughs) What were they trying to say? <laughs> you know? I mean, it's bizarre, really, in a in a way, because the last time a psychiatrist wore surgical scrubs, so far as I know, was when they were cauterising somebody, and you'd think they'd want to forget about that. But there was a there was a sort of, there's, and I, I think part of the issue about the way that psychiatrists, the professionals look at these is, is is this anxiety they have about their position with respect to, 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 to medicine. I was once told just, we've gone much, longer, but once told by a New Zealand psychiatrist, she said, well, we have to take a biomedical approach, because otherwise we won't be treated as real doctors. And I said So why do you want to be a real like that? Quick doctorate?
0: response, David, because you, it's only fair to let you well, respond to that, and then we need to talk about sorry. voices more specifically. Um,
5: I don't agree with that at all. <laughs> um, I, I was a liaison psychiatrist um, you know, in, my, in my clinical life, and I had lunch with physicians and surgeons every day, and we had a lot of very fascinating and very interesting discussions about the nature of mental illness and their recognition of it um, you know, in, in, in whatever speciality they, they were practising. Um, I think that maybe what psychiatrists are doing more of now is listening to um, their patients who have psychotic illnesses. You know, Freud taught us how to listen to people with neurotic illnesses. And to some extent, Ronnie Lang was trying to get us to listen to what people with psychotic illnesses were saying, but we didn't want to hear that because we didn't find his clinical views really of, of, of much therapeutic benefit. Um, but um, rather like the, the person you were talking about, I can remember seeing somebody with, with chronic schizophrenia in a and who was um, asked if he was hearing voices and what the voice was, was telling him, and it says, it's been shot in the foot, it's been shot in the foot, it's been shot in the foot. And this is somebody who had come in from um, a sheltered accommodation. Um, hadn't had a bath, clearly, for you know, an awful long time. And in A&E, his shoes were taken off and uh, various layers of, of, of socks were peeled off. And he had four million gangrene. So you know, he, he was trying to communicate something, he couldn't do it directly but his voice, in a sense, was doing it for him.
0: In relation to that question about psychiatrists listening, very interesting work on avatar therapy from Left's group. Mm. But I wondered, Eleanor, if you could say something about the work that you've been doing, which in many ways is quite similar, um, deeper in many ways in, in, in terms of the voice dialoguing.
1: Yeah, um, actually, before I do this, on a uh, quick... and this is just purely from my perspective as well, sort of generalising on behalf of everybody who's had this kind of intense crisis, but the objection I feel to hearing people talking about illness in this context, um, because I would see myself as I'm not mentally ill and never have been. I've been maddened, I've been driven mad, um, but I'm now mad and proud and have plenty to be mad about, which is coercion, oppression, injustice, abuse... Um, and that the experiences I had, and again, as, you know, as Richard described, and many, many others, there's a lot of research to also bear this out, is that these experiences, we can reify them purely as symptoms or try and understand them also as adaptations and survival strategies. Um, that even things like, like voice-hearing, like self-injury, like unusual beliefs are responses that have come around for a reason and, in some level, it all makes sense. And when I work with people um, experiencing these kinds of crises, that's the premise that I almost go into that encounter with. That at some level, this all makes sense. Um, in terms of the idea of communicating with voices, this work... Um, well, it goes back a very long way, actually. The birth of the Hearing Voices movement was based very much about the, the great anecdote that Richard told with Patsy Hagen, and Marius Marius um, was One thing that Marius noticed in the improvement with Patsy was talking with other voice hearers and that sense of communality and solidarity and fellowship. And they would speak to each other's voices. So they would say things like, you know, what's, what's the voice saying now? And the other voice here would respond and tell them about it. So there is actually a very long tradition um, of people dialoguing and interacting with the voices that they hear. Um, and some of the work I've been involved in is an approach called talking with voices or voice dialoguing approach. Um, it's based very much on the idea of voices as a dissociative experience. So, without going into sort of all the quite complicated explanation of that, basically, is a an emotional response to something that's happened to the person that's so intense it hasn't been fully processed and integrated. Um, and that the voice in some respects represents a sort of disowned um, or dissociated part of the person's experience. So when we say that the voice, or when I said in my presentation, the voice represents a part of me, that's quite literally what this idea is about, that this is the voice. It may not sound like the person, it may be a different gender to the person, but in some way the voice is embodying and embedding emotional and experiential content that has happened to the person. And what we try and do in this approach is understand... The voice's perspective. Mary Schramm has a great metaphor for voice hearing where he says that they, they are messengers. They communicate compelling information about genuine social and emotional problems in the person's life. And for that point of view, it simply does not make sense to shoot the messenger and deny and ignore the content of the message. Rather, trying to, um, it's a bit of a, a simplistic way of putting it, but I think if, you know, drugging, sedation, silencing, has been a very, very conventional and traditional cure response. I don't know why I keep doing I hate people who do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, cure response in psychiatry. Whereas... Um, and, and allied mental health professions. Again, this isn't just like guild wars between um, you know uh, psychiatry and psychology. But understanding, accepting and integrating the emotional meaning of your experiences for so many of us, that is the recovery response. And that's the difference. Fantastic. Thank you.
5: <laughs> Sometimes, Eleanor, the messenger will shoot you. Um, you know, the, the suicide rate <laughs> well, in people's communities yeah. is appallingly high, and you know we have to. That's the one. You know, that's. I'm so full of admiration for you. That's the best-case scenario. If only. You know, people could find that—that that would be wonderful.
0: We need to Give people a chance to find the, that route. Mm. Um, I'm sure there'll be questions from the audience. Can we have the lights up, please? And there is a roving mic or two going around. There's a question there at the front.
5: Thank you. Can I ask the panel—is there any difference in the approach? And I'm absolutely fascinated. I'm still wiping the tear from my eye from your impassioned uh, presentation about the anti-medical model. I'm sorry. Very commas, there as well. Um, in the acute onset of hearing voices in those who are the very elderly, so people who are 85 plus 90s, who suddenly, I've had two in the last six months who I've come, had personal involvement with, is there a difference in that? Is it still a, about a deeper uh, issue that is trying to be resolved? And does the presence, in the absence of any delirium, does the presence of any visual component to that alter your approach to that? I don't know if anyone's been watching the, the bed, Bedlam programs on, on Channel 4, which I think are extremely good. And they had a, a program recently about um, um, mental health in older people, uh, and, and with some people there who were very psychotic. And I thought that the, the combination that they showed there of having, I think somebody had ECT and had a, you know, a miraculous coming out of, a, of an agitated depression after two sessions of ECT, which then enabled the medication she was on to take a hold. And, uh, uh, and she was also given psychotherapy. She had regular, ongoing psychotherapy. I think that's what's really needed in, in so many of our um, inpatient units. It's, yeah, it's what we were talking about yesterday. It's having the funds to do that, so people can have the time to do that. Um, but I think the wonderful thing about those programmes is that you can see people, very floridly mentally ill, actually getting better.
0: Mm. Thank you. And um, there's a question up top, lady with the. Hello.
2: Yes, Mike. I'd like to say thank you first of all for um, the dignity that you bring towards people who suffer from experiences such as hearing voices or dissociative experiences. The experiences. <laughs> like that? <laughs> yeah. Thank you for the dignity you bring to people who experience um, hearing voices and other, as I understand it, dissociative experiences. And I wondered if you'd like to speak a bit towards that, because one of the things I understood reading Fairbairn was that he um, he said that basis of symptomology was often dissociation. And this was one of the things that Jeannet told us as far ago as go as in the 1890s and which was not allowed within psychoanalysis for most of the 20th century. And that now understanding that dissociation underlies many of our symptoms enables more compassionate treatment approaches. And this question, this statement, which I'd like to become a strapline, don't ask what's wrong with you, but ask what happened to you. Um, If that could become a strapline within psychiatry, that feels to me that would be extremely
1: helpful. And dignifying. <laughs> um, I mean, th- thank you for, for such a, a thoughtful question. Um, I mean, very, very briefly, it's very interesting what you say about the... You know, the, at, the, at the moment, although it is starting to change, there is still this real distinction and division between dissoci- dissociation, which is seen as psychological, um, and psychosis, which is seen as biogenetic. And gradually, these, these two camps are starting to to come together and ironically they actually began back in the late 1800s um, as very, very similar and many theorists speculated about the overlap and similarity between psychosis and dissociation um, and the, the role of trauma in the origins of that. So, for instance, Bloyer's very early conceptualization of schizophrenia, when you read them now, you know, 100 years later, is basically a description of dissociative identity disorder. He talks about people using different tones of voice, people literally switching personality states. Um, And it does speak very powerfully to the idea of literally a shattered, fractured sense of self that people have been, you know. you know this, this rupture between different parts of the personality that's been stress or trauma induced, and this you know Bloyer believed as Richard's described that that was a biological process, and gradually <laughs> um, this is that fusion of ideas is starting to come back together again. And there's a conference you know next week about you know exploring. A very prestigious conference about the interlinks between what gets called association and psychosis. And just to, um, (coughs) sorry, very quickly in terms of voice hearing, um, David mentioned that uh, there's sort of the classic idea of the schizophrenic voice, they're often called Schneiderian voices, um, voices commenting or conversing, um, up until May for over 40 years had been... And this, that's how I was diagnosed with schizophrenia, is classified 1st rank pathognomic symptom of schizophrenia is the Schneiderian voice. In May of this year, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Health removed that um, as, a, as a primary symptom of schizophrenia. Voice hearing is being de-associated with schizophrenia, and one of the reasons for that is realising that those types of voices are so common in trauma experiences. And it's wonderful that these kind of things are being recognized um, and that what's began as, you know, a single imperative and over the centuries, over the years has, you know, separated out into two, mind and brain, psychology and biology, is starting to come back together again. I think this can only be a good thing, a genuinely integrated biopsychosocial model.
0: There's
5: one, there's a question. Can I just say, I I don't find those two questions mutually exclusive, what's wrong with you and what's happened to you? I think we can we can consider them both, and we have to.
3: But it's it's true, isn't it, David, that a lot of psychiatric services still don't ask what's happened to you. They still don't, I think actually.
4: Um, I would just like to say how wonderful this is uh, to hear, but to bring back to the voices that and the notion of expertise that um, Eleanor mentioned. Other people have mentioned that. The notion of experts, people who count themselves experts talking to each other and the need for more and more opportunities like this because I count myself proud to be one of a growing body of people like Eleanor who are experts by experience of surviving um, mental distress and uh, making a life that's very much worth living. And this notion of the Hearing Voices Network that utterly inspired me is here uh, experts by experience collaborating with experts by profession and that actually does happen in the intervoice movement and the dialogue the, the lack of polarization of uh, beleaguered psychiatric profession needing to claim to be the experts and the brilliance of some aspects of clinical psychology but also the OTs the nurses that you know the the multitude of disciplines and approaches across professions of a need of of discussing um, humbly together how to listen to each other. I wondered what you felt about that
0: so we we we're, i think it's a lovely comment on which to end i think that really encapsulates what we've we, what we've talked about today sam is hovering he th- makes me think of the security guy who comes <laughs> who comes along to turn the lights on at the end of the college disco um, so we really ought to call we really ought to call the host there thank you very much Eleanor longden richard dental and Bella.